Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing a book by Princeton professor Nancy Weiss Malkiel, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation. This book is a fascinating in-depth look at the process that allowed women into American and British universities, which were historically male. And I must say, I was shocked to learn how recently that process happened. But before we blow your minds with the sexism that plagued higher education so very recently, I want to introduce today's reading partner, Christy Skousen. Hi, Christy. Hello, Amy. Uh, Christy and I met in 2008 when we were both living in Los Altos, California, and we were soulmates right from the very beginning. We were running partners in Los Altos for many years. I don't know how many miles we put in or how many hours we spent talking and running in the Los Altos Hills, but you nudged me to do a couple of half marathons with you, mm-hmm. although you ended up do- running a few full marathons, so I worship at your feet <laughs> as a <Perfect>. runner. <laughs> and you're also one of the smartest, most interesting people I have ever known, and one of the funniest people I've ever known, and your impact on my life has been um, inestimable, mm. I would say. I feel the same. <laughs> Thanks. Don't cry. <laughs> I won't cry. Um you're always teaching me and helping me grow and see things in new ways. And so I'm really, really excited to have you here today and talk about this book with me. So thank you so much for being here. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about yourself first as well? Just tell us where you're from and what makes you you. Yes. So first of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here and have big and lovely feelings towards you as well. Um, In terms of a life changer, you have been such a huge influence in my life in all the good ways. So I'm very, very grateful for you. Um, My ancestors are from mostly the UK and probably Germany. My mom's Canadian and her dad was German and supposedly Russian, although I can't find that. Not that I'm a great historian, but I but maybe German and Russian. Um, I was raised in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have a few prophets in my direct lineage, including the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, and then Joseph Fielding Smith and Joseph F. Smith, and polygamy is in my history and all of the good Mormon stuff. Um, my dad was a professor. Uh, he was... Uh, got all three of his degrees from Columbia University. And my mom was also a professor. She met my dad while she was at Juilliard. And um, she got her bachelor's and master's there and then went on to get her PhD or her DMA at um, Johns Hopkins University. And she was a classically trained pianist, a fantastic uh, performer, uh, went on to be an amazing teacher. And Yes, she gave her Carnegie uh, Hall debut while she was pregnant with me. So I always say that's kind of where I started (laughs) my illustrious piano career. Um, And both of them ended up working at BYU. And that's where I spent most of my growing up from about fourth grade on with both of them teaching at BYU. I have two brothers and I'm sandwiched in the middle. We're about 18 to 20 months apart. And I, I, I... I mean, I realized I was a girl growing up, but I kind of didn't understand or recognize any gender difference between 
the two, the three of us until puberty hit. And then I felt severely betrayed where <laughs> they, you know, get to have, uh, they got taller, stronger, faster. I used to be able to beat them in arm wrestling and I could throw better. And then all of a sudden they were stronger and they could beat me in everything, but I got boobs and I got the chance to bleed a lot. So <laughs> that seems fair. Thanks, puberty. But um, so yay for that. I grew up as a competitive classical pianist and gave my own Carnegie Hall debut outside of my mother's womb when I was 18 years old. And I had the chance to perform a lot growing up all around the United States. And I got to go to Russia and Europe and play with orchestras and do solo stuff over there. So I feel really grateful. I ended up doing my undergrad at Peabody with uh, Leon Fleischer, who just recently passed away. He was a huge influence in my life. And um, after getting married, after about the first year, we, I, I met my husband in Utah. After about the first year, we moved to the Bay Area. And I got a job at the San Francisco Conservatory Preparatory Division teaching piano and did that for over 10 years. Um, I also started a school, uh, the Peary Piano Academy in Mountain View, California, which still is going strong. And it's just a bunch of great teachers and great, great, amazing students. Um, and with, with that endeavor, I wrote the Peary Piano Curriculum, which is a certification and training system for piano teachers. I also teach online where I teach um, students all over the world in partnership with ArtistWorks. So Plus, if that ain't enough, <laughs> I have four children. And I am married to Thomas Skousen, who's a fantastic, fantastic man. So that's that's about it. That's me. Amazing. You you laughed when you said your illustrious career, but you actually have had an illustrious career. I must say too, just I'm just gonna throw in that I miss going to Peary Piano recitals. Oh. Because Christie's students, like pe what people say about Christie's students and actually Perry Piano, even your teachers that you've trained, not just your private students, but that they play like really mature players right at the very beginning. And that's actually true. Like I, re I, I guess I moved to tears maybe a little easily, but even with that said, I moved to tears at those recitals because these tiny, tiny little kids with their legs dangling off mm -hmm. the bench play with these beautiful wrists and beautiful fingers and the sound that they're able to get out of the piano is you can't believe that a little kid is making making those sounds right it's incredible it's really amazing well thank you yes thank you it means a lot to me it's true I think all four of my kids took piano at Peary Piano when we lived there we love the all best children that's for <laughs> sure that is for sure uh, well you have played many roles in the all the best family's life so um, okay, one more question for you, Christy, is I wonder if you could just talk for a minute about what drew you to the Breaking Down Patriarchy Project. Sure. Like all of us, uh, we are raised only knowing what we know. And as I've experienced more life, it has been useful for me to take a few steps back and try to observe some of the systems I've supported and agreed to without really realizing it. One of these systems is patriarchy. Patriarchy is something that has been buzzing around mostly unconsciously in my life in various capacities, in my family of origin, my temple marriage, and my chosen church. Patriarchy is something that was always just accepted as something that is, without my ever choosing it or understanding why it was or how it came about. 
my interest in this project is to help me better understand those things so I can have a clearer understanding about my own choices going forward. Hmm. I love that articulation. I would say that that question and that um, motivation is probably what drove me to do the project too, right? Mm. You just kind of gradually realize that we're all participating in lots and lots of societal structures, right? That if we grew up in them, we don't really notice them or see them. And it's always really interesting to take a step back and analyze the history of how certain structures came to be, especially if they are impacting our daily lives. So Mm -hmm. um, thank you for that, Christy. Okay. Before we get into the book, let's just learn a little bit about the author of this book, and then we'll dive into the text after that. So Christy, could you tell us a little bit about Nancy Weiss Malkiel? Yes. Nancy Weiss Malkiel was born in 1944. She was educated at Smith College, obtaining her BA summa cum laude and graduating Phi Beta Kappa in 1965. And she went on from there, having won a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to Harvard University for her MA in 1966 and her PhD in 1970. She joined the Princeton University Department of History faculty as Nancy Weiss. Interestingly, that's my mom's maiden name. Yeah, Nancy I thought, Weiss. I thought of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, Weiss, not <laughs> Nancy Weiss. <laughs> Weiss. In 1969, where she rose through the ranks from assistant professor to associate professor to professor. Nancy's career as a writer and teacher has been a distinguished one. When she came to Princeton, she was already an accomplished scholar. Smith College had published her solid full-length biography, as one reader called it, of Charles Francis Murphy, 1858 to 1924, Respectability and Responsibility in Tammany Politics in 1968. She went on to publish several books thereafter. While doing research and writing her later books, Nancy was also lecturing, precepting, and leading seminars in the history department and the program in American Studies. She taught or co-taught some of the largest courses in the department's history, courses that routinely attracted in excess of 200 students. The United States since 1940, her signature course, enrolled over 300 students on six different occasions, an enormous number for a class at Princeton University. After spending a year, 1986 to 87, on a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, Nancy returned to Princeton to take up the many more challenging duties associated with the Office of Dean of the College in 1987, a position she held for 24 years. Thereafter, following a well-earned leave, she resumed teaching and research in the history department. By then, the focus of her research had shifted and she was devoting herself to exploring the decisions that elite male colleges and universities in the United States and the United Kingdom made to admit women in the late 1960s and 70s, and that their female counterparts made to admit men. In conjunction with this research, she taught a number of undergraduate seminars on co-education and women in higher education in general. Her work culminated in the book we will discuss today, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation, published in 2016 by Princeton University Press. Thanks, Christy. And I should mention that we got that information from, um, I think, a couple different Princeton University websites. Um, So let's dive into this book. It is a long book. It is (laughs) (laughs) It's thorough. It's thorough. It's thorough. Christy's a nice friend for reading this book to do this episode. It was longer than I expected, but so interesting. Mm -hmm. And one really cool thing as um, 
you read the book, the author features in the book. She was one of the first Mm. women, like we talked about before um, when we were planning the episode that uh, she figured in this process that Princeton uh, and some of the other Ivy leagues, I guess she, she was one of the first women to be admitted to Princeton, right? Right. In the 60s and 70s. So that's, I mean, I'm sure those personal experiences figured into her wanting to do this gigantic research project and understanding the whole process at different institutions. So um, it's somewhat IO, or autobiographical for her. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we are going to talk about just a few chapters. I'm going to start with chapter one and highlight a few points. Then Christy, you'll take a couple of chapters in the middle And then I'll finish up with chapters 19 and 20. So chapter one is called Setting the Stage. And I just wanted to throw out three really quick facts for historical background. First of all, co-education in the United States was the norm at many state universities, which were founded in the mid to late 19th century. I did not know that. I guess I would not have guessed that they were co-educational at the beginning. But those were the public universities, that were co-educational from the beginning. The first private college, this is the second point, is the first private college in the United States to become co-educational was Oberlin. And that happened in 1837. I thought it was interesting. um, it, It points out that the women students at Oberlin took on sex segregated roles for the college community that mirrored their eventual family responsibilities like laundry, sewing, and dishwashing. Big intake of breath. (laughs) Just breathe. I have a paper bag on hand if you need it. (laughs) Seriously. Okay, I'm going to college to learn laundry. Uh That's fantastic. How to wash dishes. (laughs) Perfect. Yes, exactly. Well, interestingly, isn't that, I mean, this comes up again and again. I'm writing my thesis on um, a women's group, well, women in a civil rights organization. And one of the things they complained about Um, was the same thing, that these men and women were working together in the civil rights movement. And in addition to their work together, when dishes needed to be washed or when, yeah, when floors, yes, when floors needed to be swept, it was just automatically assumed that the women would do it. And they Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. So I, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's actually, I mean, it's not official really, but I don't know that that automatic assumption and practice has died out all the way. Nope. I would think not. Okay, the third point really quick is um, that there was an interesting phenomenon where um, at some of the public universities like Berkeley and Michigan, um, the enthusiasm for having women students and for co-education waned in the face of experience. They Mm. said that too many women students were enrolling and they were doing too well academically. And so the fear was that they might, quote, feminize or even overrun, that's, quote, their universities. Okay, so my question about in, in response to that is, did those worst fears come true, right? Because I'm, I'm going to skip ahead chronologically, and then we'll have to backtrack and go back to the 60s and 70s. But right now, women do outnumber men in undergraduate programs in the United States. And actually, even in some graduate programs, there are now more women than men enrolled. So that leaves me with a few questions. One, is women's work done now? Now that there are at least an equal number and and even more women than men, does that mean we're done? Two, has it gone too far? They were afraid that the universities would be overrun and feminized. Has that happened and is that bad? Um, And is the current situation now bad for men? 
And if so, then how do we encourage men and women's education and careers so that both can flourish and thrive and not one gender at the expense of the other? Because that's my goal. You and I both have daughters and we have sons. Mm -hmm. And I know we both want the future to be open and welcoming and um, helpful for our the flourishing of all our children, our sons and our daughters. So what mm-hmm. do you think about that? Yeah, those are great questions. In terms of women's work being done, I mean, I guess that depends on what the goal was. Mm-hmm. So if the goal is just to equalize male and female enrollment in higher education, then perhaps we have gone too far if women are outnumbering men at this point. But I think your other questions are the most important. Um, you know, is the current situation a good one for men? And is it a good one for women? Just like what you were saying, is it something that works for, for all of us? Do we have an environment now that supports both male and female careers and gives both an opportunity to flourish? I think those questions are essential to ask now and keep on asking because things shift and change and what works now won't always work in the future. So what's essential as we move forward together is that both men and women are in positions of leadership so that they can make decisions together and have a voice together. And yeah, it's that it's that process of of always being willing to ask questions and see what is and what should be. And I think it's this inability to change and this desire to keep things as they are, because that's just easier for us, um, that this book addresses so well. And I think it's just, it, we have to be willing to keep, keep asking questions and including everybody in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I think representation, like you said, um, in leadership is a key issue. And we'll talk about that um, as we go on through the chapters, because at the time that this book is addressing and, and writing about, there was almost zero female representation, right? Mm-hmm. In those rooms where the, the decisions were being made that would impact women, there were no women there making the decisions. And so um, I, I another thought I had is that even though there are now more women than men in in college getting degrees, that doesn't guarantee a respectful you know, work environment Mm. for them, right? Or equal access to career opportunities or equal pay for equal work. And so in terms of like, is work, is women's work done? I would say definitely not. Um, And then the other thing that it makes me think of is the speech by Virginia Woolf, Professions for Women, which we talked about a few episodes ago, where she's encouraging a bunch of women who are going out into the workforce for the first time in 1931 And she says, you know, all of these professions are now open to women. And she had written the book, A Room of One's Own. And she says, you have a room of of your own now. No women in history have ever had the opportunities that you have. But you still have internal battles to fight. Um, And she talks a lot about the battles against um, a woman's own sense of inadequacy, a woman's own sense of inferiority that women had picked up, especially if they've encountered misogyny or even well-meaning benevolent patriarchy throughout their lives, that just because the door is open legally doesn't mean that the women are equally able to take advantage of the opportunities. And we're going to talk about that later in these chapters Mm -hmm. as well. And it's not only internal either, right? Like the women who started at these colleges encountered tons of 
um, animosity and lots and lots of obstacles, even though legally the door was open, right? Okay, anyway, back to the timeline. Um, even though the public universities were open to women from the beginning, the Ivy Leagues were always all male. And the decisions to limit opportunities for women students were made by men, as we just talked about. Another quote I thought was really important is this one. It responds to the argument that once women in the United States got the right to vote, that everything was equitable and that women were not at a disadvantage anymore. And Malkiel writes, quote, giving women the right to vote did not affect the range of sex discrimination that was built into the fabric of American society. It did not give women equal employment opportunities. It did not require equal pay for equal work. Adjusting for education, experience, skills, and field, women in 1960 were earning 61% of men's wages. Moreover, no matter what the industry, there was a ceiling on how far women could go. The vote did not give women the same educational opportunities as men, especially in graduate and professional schools. It did not give women agency to make their own decisions. It did not give them access to credit in their own name. It did not affect cultural and personal expectations about women's subordinate role, that it was women's responsibility to maintain the home and raise the children, that the husband's needs and wishes should take precedence over his wife's, that biology and nature made women suited to supportive, nurturing roles. That feels really uh, familiar to me. <laughs> um, kind of along the same lines, writing in the, Sun the Saturday Review in 1958, the anthropologist Ashley Montague, who is a man, by the way, Ashley, what used to be a man's name. Um, Ashley Montague said, being a good wife, a good mother, in short, a good homemaker is the most important of all the occupations in the world. So I have really mixed feelings about that mm -hmm. quote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know about you, but mm -hmm. I, I guess... It, in one sense, I, I do appreciate that there's value in that last message when he says it's it's the most important of all the occupations in the world. I really appreciate that that doesn't demean the work of the home and family because I actually do think that that is, it probably is the most important work in the world, the work of the family. Um, but the problem for me at least is that if domestic work is valuable for a person's character and for the functioning of the home, then all members of the household should participate in it. If it's, if it's that valuable and it's that worthy of an endeavor, then I don't want to leave anybody out of it. That's right. I'll, I'll come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to deprive my son of that work either. And I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm, I'm serious. Mm -hmm. And the other problem, obviously, is that it limits women to only that role. And it is an important role, but it's not fair, especially for a man to limit women, to limit women to only that role. So I would change the quote to, being a good spouse, a good parent, or a good child or sibling or aunt or uncle or whatever for, for those who aren't married. In short, a good family member is the most important of all the occupations for a human being because that will bring joy and flourishing and it passes on the greatest chances of joy and flourishing to the next generation. But as it stands, that quote emphasizes a woman's role as a homemaker and without any of those changes, that is restrictive for women. And it leads men to see women in a very limited, diminished way, that she only does that. Um, and that leads into um, an article in Time magazine in 1955. Um, Time commissioned um, interviews with graduating seniors at 20 colleges and universities and asked them what they expected their lives to be like 15 years afterward. 
The, so the sociologist David Reisman, who examined the transcripts, reported on some of the most striking findings. So um, here are a few of the seniors in 1955 and what they said. These are all men, by the way, male um, graduates. And here's what they said about their future wives from a Princeton student, quote, uh, my future wife should be the Grace Kelly camel's hair coat type. Although an Ivy League type, she will also be centered in the home, a housewife. Perhaps at 45, with the children grown up, she will go in for hospital work and so on. And improving herself culturally and thus bringing a deeper sense of culture into our home will be one of her main interests. Um, and my reaction to that is I don't know that there's anything inherently wrong with like wearing a camel hair coat. Like, that's fine. <laughs> like, that's fine. It's actually quite dashing. Yeah. We can understand his preference there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to wear a camel's hair coat? Um, yeah, that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of those traits. Like, going, do, doing work in a hospital. What could be It's noble. Christy's laughing. She can't talk. <laughs> Um, but it's just that they're being prescribed for her, right? right? Like that's the problem that even in, even her interest in culture is only for the benefit of the home. So I, that was my reaction. What did you think? Yeah. My thought when I was reading it was, I wonder what the women said in the article written about them and how they predicted their lives would look like in 15 years. I mean, they could probably come up with a charming laundry list of attributes as well, like handsome, mm -hmm. strong jaw and upper body, <laughs> focused on career and a good provider. Definitely well-respected as a, as a leader and in the community while still being able to come home and roughhouse with the children. <laughs> as he enters retirement, <clears throat> I imagine, I mean, who does this? Right, right. I imagine he'll enjoy a good golf game <laughs> with the boys, smoke some sort of pipe. <laughs> you do this who does this and writes an article anyway that was a thought mm -hmm. I, and, and again I, it's all well and good mm -hmm. we can I guess we can prescribe things for each other and say this is my preference or this is what I'm looking for but the only problem is that women at this time held zero power in the marital relationship dynamic so if if women don't get married then what mm -hmm. and if their husband chooses to divorce them then what or if their husband has an affair then what so the motivation for a woman to fit the laundry list of what a man wants is very different than a man's motivation to fit the laundry list of what a woman wants. So I can see this going down as just, okay, if I'm going to have a secure future, I'm reading this article as a woman and saying, I need to be this, this, mm. this, and this, this is what's needed for me. And a man can take it or leave it because he, he can make a living. He can have all those women available to him or, who are going to do exactly and be exactly who he wants them to be because he's the one in power. And even like you were saying that it's supporting, you know, that quote that's talking about the um, family being the most important, most important role. It still is to, so that we can have this great family so we can support the man, mm. right? So we provide this great home and family and children so that the man can go off and do whatever he does in the world and he can come home and feel warm and, and safe and appreciated. I'm not saying that's in every scenario, but definitely it could even be framed that way too. So mm -hmm. um, that, that article and a lot like this in the book, I mean, 
she does an amazing job, Nancy, of just quote after quote after mm-hmm. direct quote of wow, mm-hmm. really. So, yeah, exactly. In fact, let's read a couple more from that Time article um, because they do go on to demonstrate exactly what you just articulated. Um, here's a graduate from Harvard quote, she shouldn't be submissive. She can be independent on little things, but the big Christy just, hand, I mean, even smacked her head, even the word she can yeah, like, thanks for that. True. Thanks for your, for your permission right. for me to be independent. Thank, thank you. Right. Exactly. I had overlooked that. I mean, I went on to like, she, well, the sentence says she can be independent on little things, mm. but you're right to point that out at the very beginning to say she can that he's in the in the position of being able to give her permission or not. Right. 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 Okay, he says she can be independent on little things, but the big decisions will have to go my way. The marriage must be the most important thing that ever happened to her. Mm, deity. Yeah. Lucky you to be such a god. Yeah. It makes me sick. It actually mm-hmm. like that last sentence made me so angry. Mhm. But I do know women who have marriages where their husbands have essentially said that very thing, that they'll allow their wives to be independent as long as their opinions don't conflict, right? So everything goes really well unless there's a conflict of opinion. But if there's an impasse, then things will go his way. That's really, really common. Um, And then, yeah, that last phrase that marriage must be the most important thing that ever happened to her, just it, it, it makes me sick because it sets up the woman to be not only physically, but financially and mentally and emotionally dependent on her husband for the rest of her life. In the role, Mary Wollstonecraft said it 200 years ago that the woman is kept in the role of a perpetual child. Mm. And the the husband, you just said like he's a deity, right? He's He's like a parent or like a god. And the wife will feel dependent and can then start to feel her that she's inferior and that she's trapped. And the husband can only feel from that. I mean, it's just inevitable that he will feel some sort of superiority and potentially eventually disdain for his wife because she can't keep up with him, right? And we'll see that in in other quotes where men kind of mock women that they're not able to keep up mentally with them, but they're deprived of the opportunity to develop their minds. Anyway, I think it's just a recipe for disaster. So uh, yeah, a couple of other... um, relevant data points. Malkiel points out that in the late 1950s, 60% of women dropped out of college to get married. And that I think just sets their relationship up for that dynamic. Um, We started out with these discussions about marriage and women's futures, just because they're relevant to determine what type of education people thought women would need, right? If that's what women were expected to do, then college was kind of supposed to prepare them for that's that sort of future. Um, for example, the president of Mills College, Lynn Townsend White Jr., again, a man named Lynn, um, said that women's colleges should create a, quote, distinctively feminine curriculum, including textiles, weaving, leatherwork, and flower arranging that reflected rather that reflected rather than denied the differences between the sexes, end quote. And <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Again, I'm just thinking, this is why I grew up thinking I wasn't a girl because oh. I, I wasn't interested in any of this. Mm. Still am not. Textiles, no. Weaving, zero. Leather work, what about sure. leather work, though? <laughs> you got <Yeah>. me. <laughs> <laughs> You're 
always hammering on belts and attaching the buckles to things. I miss buckle. Okay, and flower arranging, right? So that just reflects rather than denies. We don't want to deny the differences. So let's just give the women what they want, the textiles. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, which is fine. I have nothing against a good textile, but... this was just never my interest. And Mm -hmm. if this were told to me when I was young, which it wasn't, I I think I would have had a gender identity crisis. I I don't relate to any of that. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. and then a boy who does also feels ashamed and he feels trapped and he can't even admit it. Right. Because being to be masculine means like the definition of masculinity is the denial of anything feminine, right? Right. And right. so then oh. it's not good for anybody. Nope. This is what John Stuart Mill and Sarah Grimke and Virginia Woolf all railed against. They all said, whatever knowledge or virtue is good for a man is also good for a woman. And there may be differences between men and women, but for heaven's sake, there shouldn't be a group of men deciding what the distinctions are and then limiting the women's choices and opportunities based on what they, the men, think the differences are, Right. So I just think we should be encouraging all our children, boys and girls, from the moment they're born to be interested in all the fields of learning and exploring everything and to feel confident in any endeavor that interests them. And then they'll choose what they'll choose. And maybe more girls will end up choosing textiles. Sure. Who cares? Great. That's great. And maybe boys will end up, I don't know, maybe more boys will be firefighters. That's fine. Right. But to use the argument that men and women are different, which they are, and therefore men get to make the choices for women, that's where I draw the line. Yeah, that that really resonates with me. Just the idea of, again, prescribing, you do this, you do this, and only this, Mm -hmm. you know, and to, I, I, I don't quite understand what the fear is in terms of letting people choose. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something... I need a different perspective on. I I don't understand what the fear is because mm-hmm. like you're saying, we're, we are different. Men and women are different. We're biologically different. Our brains are different. Our hom- hormones are different. Our, our bodies are different. And most likely we will choose maybe more male firefighters, like you said, something more physical. We, we might, might fall into these generalities or norms. Um, but even then, what if we didn't? Then mm-hmm. what? What? Yeah. Would nobody choose those things? Is that I just don't understand the fear. So maybe that is that is um something I need to understand better. For me right now, it looks like a way to keep one group in power, mm-hmm. <laughs> one group in charge, and the other one um in a supportive role. Yep. And that's what the fear is, is I don't want to lose that power because if I lose that power, then what for me? Right. And if I've always been in power and always been taught that I will be in power, and now you say I won't, will I have a place? And and that's a valid fear, but at least we can talk about it being power mm-hmm. and not, oh no, we're going to not have any textile lovers <laughs> anymore or... <laughs> What's going to happen to the textiles? Mm-hmm. Like nobody's choosing those because everyone wants to be a policeman. I mean, I just don't think it will a policeman. See, when I say man, right? We still did. Well, we even <sighs> talked about before we started this, when we were talking about the book, how Christy, your dog is named Professor. Right. And if I hear that a pet is named Professor, I just automatically it's assume it's a, a dude, it's a, boy. a yeah. boy dog. Yeah. Right? Yep. When you said that, I was like, professor, and I pictured professor being a girl, and it was a big mind shift for right. me, which exposed my prejudice. Right. 
Yeah. Yep. We're all swimming in it. Yep. Okay. I think you have the next chapter. That's all I got for chapter one. So if you want to take it away. I will take it away. We'll head to chapter three. Uh, The title of chapter three is Yale. Girls are people just like you and me, which (laughs) somebody actually said that, which is why it's the title chapter. So this chapter is about the School of Fine Arts of Yale admitted its first degree candidates in 1869 and awarded the first Yale degree to a woman in 1891. So I think this goes back to kind of what you were exploring earlier because Yale wasn't officially co-ed until 1969. So that that really surprised me that women were given educational opportunities as early as 1869, mm-hmm. which was much earlier than I thought. Um, most likely now that we've talked about this, they were being taught how to do laundry and dishwashing. I don't know, but most likely. Um, and then I'm also surprised that the process to make coeducation official took so many years. Uh, Yale was officially fully co-ed only three years before I was born. So that's basically in my lifetime. And that kind of blows my mind. And one thing this book really highlighted for me is how complicated it is to engage in institutional change. Even with the best of intentions, change of this sort requires so much process and planning and analysis. And often the slowness of institutional change can feel frustrating and personal. So I think a lot of this where I'm thinking, why didn't why didn't this happen faster? And it feels personal. Like we just want to keep the women down. Uh, it, it was helpful for me to kind of realize change takes time and especially these institutions that were so old and so dependent on tradition and had such a large community to kind of appease and go along with them. It, it helped me to realize how much work was involved. I mean, I think of changes even within my own family and what goes down to change anything within my family, let alone things within my school, which is a microcosm of, you know, Yale or Princeton or Harvard. And just the smallest changes take so much buy-in and so much communication and planning and how we're going to roll this out. So um, I'm really grateful for this book for pointing that out because it, it makes me feel more grateful for the people that were really working towards it and what a, what a huge endeavor it was. This next part kind of talks about the reaction that people were giving as Yale was trying to move to a co-educational model. Okay, so one one point in the book reads this. And gentlemen, let's face it, charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you are forced to associate with them each and every day. <laughs> so bad. Think of the poor student who has a who has a steady date. He wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. So, uh, yeah, this just strikes me as sad and lazy thinking. I mean, other than being completely offensive, mm-hmm. it's it is so much easier and our brains are built to do this, right? To make judgments quickly and then to define quickly and put people or things into categories so we don't ever have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. And so it's really so much easier to classify people in really general, broad terms, lump them all together. You know, so saying all women are speak about certain things that happen to be idiotic. They, they don't have 
ideas that are interesting. They certainly aren't involved in academics. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of posture is, is both laughable, but also you know, you think, oh, I wouldn't hear that today, but we do hear oh, that we today. Do. Oh, absolutely. We do hear that today. And it has, it has its effects. I, you know, this book, The Silent Sex that was published in 2014, also um, by Princeton hmm. University, it, it shows how it is that women can be disempowered in deliberative groups. So groups that are making decisions about things mm-hmm. and common dynamics today include women having unequal talking time in those groups, being routinely interrupted way more than men, that men interrupt women way more than women interrupt men, and having limited influence. In fact, they showed they would do do, do these studies in groups of five women, and they showed unless there were four women to one man, that, they, that women just kind of, they both took themselves out of the conversation or were just ignored or both. So it was either they had to have a strong majority, four women to five men to have a voice, or have the model of it has to be unanimous. Wait, four women to how many men? One man. Okay. So sorry, four women to one man. The women were were more vocal and their their opinions um, were heard in that scenario. Any less than that, and they kind of faded into the background. Um or if it was unanimous. If the model was saying every voice matters and you only move forward altogether, then that ratio could be one woman to five men because the woman could have her her say. I just thought that was really interesting that that's going on even now. And I look at this, you know, uh, viewpoint of of this Yale student saying about here's here's what we're going to be forced with if women come into our to our uh, university and. I mean, that's the damage it does is that women will just say, mm-hmm. I'm out. Well, that's interesting, too, because we t- we started out by asking, is is it is women's work done? And also, is this bad for men if women outnumber men at college? And that and now I'm thinking like in those classes, there may be if there are slightly more women in the classes than men, it still doesn't mean that the women are going to be heard and not interrupted. That's right. Right. That's right. I mean, and that's not to say that you then want your classes to be for women to one man so that the women will speak up more. But we're just going to have to be creative about what the solutions can be so that everybody can thrive. But I definitely, we've talked about this in other episodes too of, I'm thinking especially of that, that episode with Rochelle on killing the angel in the house. And we talked a lot about our experience of being really, really shut down as women in the classroom Mm. and that that's still really common. Mm. And I also just have to point out this guy's, um, comment about like, oh, the guy, the, the men are trying to think about thermodynamics. thermodynamics and the women just are like prattling on about whatever, what he says, like idiotic, idiotic trivia, which all men or which all women impose on men. And I just think like, that's not true, but even if it were, I mean, that's again, if they're kept from education and they hear men talking about them as idiots then I don't know what you expect for women to do. Right. They're just trying to please men. And and then the men criticize them for not being able to talk about thermo, thermodynamics when they're not allowed to study thermodynamics, right? It just, that's a hard one. Yeah, that is a hard one. In, in a Yale Daily News article, one male student said, 
What happens when you go to a men's school is you forget how really good girls can be. You get entangled in a weekend-to-weekend existence and you become a product of it. You lose sight of the simple fact that girls are people just like you and me. Instead, they become things to play with on a lot of days. Things. So I really appreciate this man that's trying to see, whoa, you know, this is the paradigm that's been running kind of unconsciously for me. And and I do appreciate that it's moving in the direction of including women and valuing them in a new way. But it is also just really disheartening that that it takes so much like mental gymnastics work for men or this man, I should say, to, to kind of see woman, women in something other than just as a thing, mm-hmm. as a thing to this on a certain day that's useful for me for this one purpose, you know, and wow, it's revolutionary for me to think, wow, uh, you know, a woman is a person just like just like you and me, other man. Right. <laughs> I know. I mean, that assumption, like, just, oh. He's not talking to his dog, no. although they get sighted later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. That's yeah. right. This whole book to me felt like, like it was Mad Men College Edition or something, right? Like, I kept hearing the men on Mad Men, like, oh. speaking the words because it felt so much like Mad Men. You told me not to watch it because you said I would hate it, and you are right. I hate it. It's terrible, but I can't stop watching it because it's so, it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's so well done. And I do recommend for listeners to watch it if you're interested in better understanding the gender dynamics at this time in the yep. 1960s. And yeah, those male characters really did just see women as things for their use, right? Yeah. And and then that's how they would, re- that's how then the women would interact with the men. Yes. So their power was yes. to be the most attractive thing yes. to the man. Yes. Which is also kind of, yeah, it's interesting to watch in that show. It's also, it's both kind of good for you for taking your power. You have it. And are you kidding me? Yep. That's your only option here. So, okay. Moving on to chapter five, which I will also cover. Um, It's titled A Penetrating Analysis of Far-Reaching Significance. So now this goes into Princeton and its relationship with co-education. Princeton was in the business of producing leaders male leaders and alumni had a strong investment in the young men who matriculated at the university, whether they were sons or grandsons of alumni or excellent students from schools and communities to which alumni were deeply attached. So this demonstrates to me the longstanding tradition and belief that women are destined to be in the home raising kids and being in charge of the household while men are destined for leadership within the community. Um, and primary education is good enough to support this destiny, maybe even some higher education, but you know they'll leave those courses exclusively to homemaking. But the higher education in these exclusive universities was meant to train future community leaders, and leaders were men, and these men were supported by men who went before them. So there was no female leadership that was looking out for women are making opportunities available for them. So this shows, you know, that in order to change this belief in an institution, it's just so old and supported by so many generations, which is one of the reasons it requires so much time and process and analysis to change. It's like changing that direction of a huge barge. Uh, This comes from a New York Times editorial about Princeton's uh, journey towards co-education. 
Quote, the Patterson Committee found, in effect, that if Princeton wants to, conti wants to continue to attract the highest type of young men to its campus, it has to offer them the delights of feminine companionship as well as the delights of learning. Gardner Patterson, who led a committee that investigated the desirability and feasibility of co-education at Princeton, fired off a letter to the editor to set the record straight. Quote, what a lot of work my colleagues and I could have saved had we thought that providing such delight for our male students would be a sufficient justification for urging our trustees and president to overturn a 225-year-old tradition and to incur substantial financial obligations to boot. In fact, the committee had made its case for admitting women on, of all things, educational grounds. So, I mean, this is so interesting. And I'm super proud of Gardner Patterson, who... It's covered a lot in the book um, of just heading this committee and really leaving no stone unturned. He, his committee was so thorough in the effects and, and, and of, of admitting women and how to do it and was very um, data-driven. And it was just very, very impressive, you know, and he spent a long amount of time, a lot of time, and, and energy putting this whole thing together. And then, yes, to have the New York Times editorial be saying, you know, that that Princeton's wanting to do this so we can have the delight of feminine companionship yeah. is just such a slap in the face. Um, and yeah, there's so many challenges to co-education. It was including learning how to expand, you know, how to relate to women, which is what we were reading in that last quote of, wow, they're just like you and me. I don't just see you on the weekend. I see you in the classroom now. So how do I relate to you now as a person? So seeing them as people more than just social delights and then beginning to consider their value in other realms, you know, including education outside of just being supportive in a home environment. And it it is, again, it is surprising to me. Maybe I just have to reconcile like, this is just the human brain, but it is surprising to me that that white men, and maybe all men, but white men in these examples have such a hard time considering that a fuller, deeper education would include interacting with people that are not like them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can kind of imagine it on Wall Street or something, you know, or in a business or on a sports team. But I think education, which is supposed to be kind of curious and explorative, and you know that it kind of expansive that you just keep wanting to shut it down. So I, I really am so grateful for, for leaders such as Gardner Patterson, who are willing to fight back. And he is a man as well. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of women I know named Gardner, but it's good to <laughs> just point out. <laughs> um, a member of the class of 1932 wrote from Cleveland, and this is now they're getting alumni feedback on uh, what some of the alumni think about the co-education of Princeton. And one of them wrote, if Princeton goes co-educational, my alma mater will have been taken away from me. And Princeton is dead in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> and from Palm Beach, Florida came a similar proposal. What is all this nonsense about admitting women to Princeton? A good old fashioned whorehouse would be considerably more efficient and much, much cheaper. And that's in print. And when the first women arrived at Yale, they were greeted by a banner hanging on the old campus, quote, if you must admit women, why this ugly bunch, end quote. So 
I mean, again, such threatened reactions. And I do, I wonder, I want to talk to them and say, what's behind that? It's such bully behavior. Is it, are you just, you know, defending your territory? Is it out of habit? Is it fear of change? Were men worried about losing their place? Were they worried about losing their purpose? I mean, I think if we're going to continue to work together and improve this, we have to understand what it is that's so so threatening. Um, I remember hearing some quote about if you want if you want to f- get somebody to fight, you threaten their identity. Mm. So are you threatening their identity? Um, but the 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 amount of anger and threat in these quotes are what stand out to me. And other, you know, I think I'm coming from a lovely place of saying I would like to understand you so yeah. I can work with you, but also. I want to be clear that it's not okay mm-hmm. and that your words do have an effect mm-hmm. and they are incredibly harmful and we are still paying the price for even even now for words such as these and that we still hear today maybe not as much and mm-hmm. but we do and in, I won't, won't go into it but we all know that we do and mm-hmm. in very pub from very public figures in very public places yeah it's very harmful. It is very harmful. I agree. And I, I was just going to say, wow, I think you're giving them a lot of benefit of the doubt and asking like, are you feeling scared? <laughs> What's being threatened? Are you, you know, you're defending your territory. And I do agree. I think that was a really great and important point and is really consistent with the tone and the attitude that I want to have as I read all of these texts and discuss them. Um, trying to understand why people are behaving the way they do. And I do think that's important. But when you're asking, like, where is this coming from? Probably you're right. A lot of different things, a lot of different fears that they haven't realized that they have. And I think some of it is just plain old misogyny. Hmm. And I don't actually use that word lightly. I Misogyny means hatred of women. And that's hmm. not the same as benevolent patriarchy, right? You can, like, idolize and and appreciate women and still kind of keep them in a gilded cage. But that's not what this is. This is misogynistic to say that a a woman entering Princeton should be in a whorehouse, like a good old fashioned whorehouse. That's disgusting. And it just, it reminds me of all language like that cruel homophobic language or racist epithets where it just exposes the absolute worst in human beings. And I think I don't know. It's, it seems to me that a lot of times that's inherited from people's families and people's cultures that if they're taught that another human being is beneath them or if they're taught to have disdain for another type of human being, then that's really, really hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe if they've never even had the goal of getting rid of it, a, a person can live like that their whole lives, thinking that they that other people are, are disgusting or other people are are beneath them. And that's what those quotes sound like to me. Mm. It's just the worst in humanity. It just sounds like contempt. Mm -hmm. And it's really ugly. Really ugly. And really harmful, like you said. Really harmful. So now into chapter six, treat Yale as you would a good woman. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it just catches me off guard. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. It's, I'm glad it's so foreign to me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then what's jarring, which we can talk about, but what's jarring is that it's both so foreign to me and then also so part of what I accepted and what I agreed to in my own life without even knowing I was agreeing to it. Mm. A lot of kindness, but yes, more of like the um, the benevolent 
patriarch is more what I've encountered. So we move on to Yale and their relationship towards uh, co-education. And this first part is by, um, this first quote is from Elga Wasserman, who's a woman, and she was the special assistant to the president um, of Yale, Kingman Brewster. And she was in charge um, with overseeing the entrance of the first co-educational class at Yale College. So Wasserman reassured male students nervous about the super women, super women joining them on campus that there would not be too many girls who are both really bright and really aggressive. Exceptionally bright, yes, but more likely to be quiet than over-assertive. So this is just taking a different perspective you know, in terms of threat. So we don't see them as objects, but now we're seeing them maybe as smarter than we are, uh-oh, or too aggressive, oh boy, or what are we going to do? Again, like they're foreign objects. We don't know what to do with them in this academic situation. This feels uncomfortable to us. Mm. And it does, again, speak to accepted gender roles that women are supposed to be supportive. So mm. if they're aggressive, what do we do with them? It makes us very uncomfortable. We need reassurance to know they're not going to be too aggressive because we're used to them being supportive and in the background and we don't know how to handle it otherwise. And heaven forbid that they're smarter than us because then what's our what's our purpose here if we can't be the only ones talking about thermodynamics? <laughs> I mean, heaven forbid that that would actually increase and, and improve the field of thermodynamics. Maybe <laughs> we're having more people talk about it. Um, so at Yale, the basic approach to co-education as the headmistress of the girls' boarding school, Milton Academy observed, was to begin by treating the girls like the boys and see what happens. So here's another take, you know, is, again, what do we do? How do we handle these girls coming in? Well, let's just treat them like boys, mm -hmm. you know, which is, well, they're not boys because then we go into, you know, inherent differences. So one of the problems they ran into was how would they be housed? Like, are they going to live together? And how's that going to look? And would they have all the same opportunities? And what about sports? So they realized we don't, we're not set up to have the same opportunities in sports. And, and even just in numbers of how many women should be admitted, should we start off with, I mean, most of them started off with small numbers and would gradually increase, had this plan of increasing enrollment to until they got about, you know, they would have specific percentages of, we'll get to 30, 70, you know, with 70% men and 30% women, or we'll try and get to 50-50. But if we move it too fast, then it's going to upset everybody and we're not used to it. So we'll do it gradually. But there were so many details to consider and clearly threats felt all around, even for the people who are happy about women coming in, there was just a lot of unknown. So I'm really grateful for the people who were willing to wade through it instead of just saying, are you kidding me? You know, and trying to blow things up, which is kind of where I tend to go. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so uh, as, as women are coming into Yale, there was a math class where a woman student was asked for her opinion on the chain rule. And why did the instructor single her out? She asked. And he answered to make sure to include the female point of view. And she said, it's a math class. There is no female perspective. Good for her, by Good the way. For Good for her, because she was probably well underrepresented in that class. Yep. In a psychology course, a woman studied a, a woman student often got papers back with comments such as "not bad for a woman." Uh, in directed studies, where the students were reading Plato's Republic, the instructor asked the two women students, "Girls, 
Plato says women are as intelligent as men. Do you think that's true? One of the students recalled. We looked at each other in amazement and said, yes. The instructor grinned and pounced. Then why are there no great women philosophers? The incident made a lasting impression. I forget exactly what was what answer was made, the student said. But of course, it was followed by no great women artists, no great women composers, etc., etc. And more painful still is the experience of students who had the temerity to, to suggest that they were interested in studying women. Wasserman told the story years later of a woman student who came to her office absolutely dissolved in tears. What was the matter, Wasserman asked. I talked to the chair of the department about giving a course in women's history, the student said, and he said that would be like teaching the history of dogs. So I honestly don't understand these professors. I, I don't understand what they're trying to accomplish, and there's no display of curiosity, no display of desired connection or empathy, just closed-mindedness. I don't understand what they're trying to communicate. Are they trying to test the female students to see if they can break them? Or are they just so mad that women are there? Kind of like you were talking about, Amy, and just have so much contempt and they just want to prove you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. It just seems so opposite of what typically drives a teacher, Mm. which is the hope to inspire and educate and motivate, not to shut down or diminish your students. And being a teacher myself, I just can't imagine this challenging paradigm of meeting everybody that comes comes in to learn from you with such challenge. You know, I I guess I associate it, and especially with higher education, with looking at all of the things, you know, the past, the present, the future, and all of the perspectives, different genders, races, socioeconomic classes. And, and I'm just thinking today, maybe our institutions of higher learning are seen as liberal. So maybe we've swung, you know, the pendulums crossed the line and swung a little on the other side of just saying, let's open our minds and see all angles. But I think if there's a place for that, it is education. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I am grateful that that's kind of more where we're landing now. Um, And maybe back then it was so conservative and these institutions had a lot of power. And so they were trying to keep keep their power and show that they were the ones in power. But it's it, it's really disheartening for me to read those sorts of things. And again, to, to see the damage that comes from that is just good for these women. I mean, I think about, again, Nancy Malkiel, who was among one of the first to go to Princeton as, as, a, as a woman. And just reading her history is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And whatever she was told, she's just like, and I'm, <laughs> you'll see me later at Harvard or I'll be at Stanford. Like, like you can tell me whatever you want. I'm just going to move forward and use my brain and be who I am. Yay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that example. I'm really super grateful. Um, one woman at Yale said, we were, an, we were an anomaly. Laboratory specimens closely watched for our reactions under the stress of tokenism generalization about our psyches was rampant. The girls are too serious. The girls are always in the library. The girls are prima donnas. We were so sought after that we simply had neither the time nor energy left to explore our own insides. We were comfort suppliers and ego boosters receiving no reassurance in return, except in terms of our subjective desirability as mere females. Oh my gosh, just reading that out loud. That's hard. Again, 
and I appreciate that they were <laughs> being observed. That's nice, right? <laughs> like, I guess. <laughs> like, we don't understand them. So at least we're watching yeah, them. That's true. Like, let's watch and learn. So yeah. I appreciate that. But again, they would then lump all the girls together. The girls are too serious. The girls are always in the library. I mean, everything turns into a generalization that, oh, I see, women are. Mm -hmm. that we're going to again. So you're not always in the house. So now you're always in the library. Like, let's just. (laughs) Right. And they're idiotic and talking about trivial things. No, no, no. They're too studious and they're too serious. Right. Like you just can never win. Right. You just can never win. And always put in a box because we don't know what to do with you. Right. And um, again, the, just the gender roles of women are supporters and ego boosters. I mean, like you were saying with family roles, that's just a human a human desire. We all need our, to think that women don't need their egos boosted too. And, you know, and to be supported too. It's, uh, it's lovely to, to both be in the role of supporting and to be supported. Mm -hmm. So, but to think that it's always left to the women to, you know, we'll accept you if you come and make us feel better. They're wonderful qualities, but they're wonderful human qualities, not just female qualities. Agreed. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome, Christy. Um, I have chapters 19 and 20 about Dartmouth. So Dartmouth is a case study in the book because it held out um, against co-education longer than any of the other Ivy Leagues. And it had some of the most inflamed reactions of any of the schools mentioned in the book. Some of them even, I would say, even a little worse than the ones we just read about Yale. I mean, Mm. just like ugly, ugly, maybe not worse, but but certainly on par with that ugliness. The president in the 1960s had said Dartmouth would never admit women. But in 1970, John Kemeny was named to succeed that prior president. Um, John Kemeny was a Hungarian immigrant who still had a pronounced foreign accent and he was Jewish. And no Ivy League institution had ever appointed a president who was either foreign born or Jewish. And when I read that, I just thought that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like just maybe someone who had had life experience being something of an outsider and maybe that made him sympathetic to women. And he also might not have been as entrenched in tradition just because he came from a different place and maybe he had different um, paradigms. So uh, President Kemeny made the announcement that they were going co-ed in 1972 Um, And I just want to read kind of a list of anecdotes to illustrate a variety of reactions when Dartmouth first began admitting women. So Christy, can we take turns reading some of these? Yes, we can. They're going to be fun. I'm going to have to slap my head a lot. I know, you can hear the head (laughs) slapping. Oh, and okay. then the, we grab our faces. And <laughs> it's like, not oh. videoed because I just, oh. Yeah, we're grabbing our faces. Just, they're pretty hard to read. Okay, can you start with this first one? Sure. In a dormitory meeting in advance of the decision, in the presence of Assistant Provost Marilyn Austin Baldwin, at the time the highest ranking woman administrator at Dartmouth, one student said, I just want you to know I don't consider women to be my equal. I don't want them in the classroom with me, and the woman I marry had better know her place or I'll knock her down into it. Another student told Baldwin, I have a friend at Williams, and Williams has 165 women. 163 of of them are pigs. Sorry, that's hard for me to read. Another student, speaking after Baldwin had left the dormitory, declared that the only reason for having coeducation is sex. 
Yep. We're going to let these just stand. We're just going to read a bunch of them because there are so many. It will really paint a picture so that um, it's clear that this isn't just a one-off jerk mm-hmm. in a frat or something. Like this is really um, a pervasive feeling on campus from a lot of different people. And Malkia lists even more than these. These are just like almost the tip of the iceberg. Okay, here's some more. In a literature class, the professor, in the words of a woman in the class of 1979, announced on the first, so the professor announced on the first day of class, quote, my name is Man. I am teaching a book about a sperm whale named Moby Dick. Anybody who has a problem with that can leave right now. I have been teaching here for 30 years and I am not about to change my ways because there might suddenly be in my classroom a delicate flower whose feminine sensibilities I might offend. Another student talks about how in an art history class, he posted slides of nude women in the slide deck, quote, accidentally. And then when the naked women would come onto the screen, he pretended to run his hands up and down the the images of the women's bodies. There was also a professor in an oceanography course who showed pictures of naked women also mixed in with the slides of sea creatures. Hmm. And the girls in the classroom just to watch that just get to watch that sitting there and I just can imagine how I would feel like really blindsided and just like you wouldn't know what to say right just the heat going through my body I can just imagine how that must have felt and just thinking what 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 does this mean did I make this up and I'm am I being too sensitive honestly I just have to interject here that this is kind of answering one of the questions I've had when, like I referenced when Rochelle and I were talking about like, well, why, why do women still mm-hmm. in the classroom? Or like you just talked about in business or in, in deliberative meetings and stuff. Why do women not talk as much? Why do women still have this? So, many women, not all women, but why do many women still have these internal, Virginia Woolf calls them the phantoms that they have to do battle with inside of them. This is in our mm-hmm. lifetimes. Yep that this crap was happening, it doesn't just disappear out of the culture overnight. Mm -hmm. I think we have absorbed a lot that sometimes we don't even consciously remember. And this is still present. I mean, you and I both could tell personal experiences of this. I think I know this feeling. I'm actually having a reaction to it right now as I'm talking of being in middle school or being in high school and some guy saying something horrible to me, right? Yep. (laughs) I can think of mine too. Yeah. Yep. And you just... You just, you just, you walk past and you're like, what just happened? And your choices are to ignore it. Here are your choices to ignore it or to laugh. Yeah. Those are your choices. So I remember thinking those are my choices. You just said something so disgusting and explicit to me Mm -hmm. about what you want me to do to you. Mm -hmm. And my choices are to be quiet or to laugh. Mm -hmm. Because if you laugh, then you're not being a, a B word, right? Because if you if you call them out on it, then you can, you're the bitch, right? Yeah, and then just more more damage is done. More damage. I'm just going to step into something way worse, right? So I'm just trying to to get you to pay as little attention to right. me as possible. Right. So I'll just like, hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I I would consider myself pretty feisty, mm-hmm. um, pretty strong. Yep. Uh, strong. I, I I have strong opinions. I'm pretty brave. And yet when it happened to me, when those things happened to me, that's what I would do. I would be quiet or I would laugh. Mm-hmm. But I, am I going to fight you? I mean, I can't physically fight you. You will always win. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I can't, if, if I go and tell somebody, right, that just, I didn't trust that I would be heard. Yeah. Like it's not going to, it's going to make it bigger. I just wanted it to go away. Right. You just want it to go away. Me too. So you're just exactly the same. I did the same thing. I'd just be quiet or I'd laugh. And then sometimes I'd go home and cry, mm. but I don't remember ever talking about it to anybody. I wouldn't either. Yeah. Mm-mm. Nope. Well, we're going to read some more from Dartmouth. So maybe we just processed our personal reactions and now we can be back to our detached mm. academic That's right. personas again. Yes, so we, we can will. just read these as data. Okay. okay. Another female student remembers, in the library, in classrooms, in restaurants, male students and alums sidled up and explained, politely, earnestly, that women didn't belong here, and that we should consider going back to where we came from. I wasn't enlightened enough to realize how sexist and offensive these discussions were. Instead, I earnestly and politely apologized. That kind of makes me want to cry. Mm -hmm. Men sitting on the roof of Massachusetts Hall shouted numbers from one to 10 as women students walked by. The numbers meant as ratings of the women's attractiveness. The same happened in the dining hall where men held up signs bearing numerical ratings. One woman reflected, no matter how cool you were, no matter how self-possessed you were as a woman, and mind you, a lot of us were 18 at the time, it was devastating. Even as late as the mid-1980s, a woman student noted that on the door to the bathroom on her hallway, under the word women, handwritten in black letters were the words, go home. Unreal. Male students like to refer to their female counterparts as cohogs, which was a phonetic spelling of the quahog, which was a thick-shelled clam. So it was a nickname meant as a derogatory reference to female genitalia. It was customary to see and hear the term in regular use on campus. In the spring of 1975, there was a competition which involved the rendition of original songs by each of the fraternities. So the entry from Theta Delta, which was sung to the tune This Old Man, consisted of 10 verses, five of which went as follows. I just cut out five of them and I included five. So it's to This Old Man. Our cohogs, they play one. They're all here to spoil our fun. With a knick-knack paddywhack, send the bitches home. Our cohogs go to bed alone. Our cohogs, they play three. They all have to squat to pee. And then the chorus again. And that one, I'm like, please. Like, it's so Freudian, like the penis envy and the like Freud had this theory that men are superior because they could pee to put out fires. Did you know this? <laughs> Specifically to put yeah. out fires? Yes, because women have envy because the men can put out like ancient man could put out the-, the... Where we just didn't like, what do we do? I know. <laughs> exactly. Water, I don't know. I don't have a penis. What am I going to do? Exactly. <laughs> Got a squat over that thing to put it out. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> yeah, that one I was just like, please, like at least think of something creative. They all have to squat to pee. That That's just like really, really old school misogyny. Um, our cohogs, they play four. They are all a bunch of whores. Our cohogs, they play six. They all love those tricap dicks. Our cohogs, they play seven. They have ruined our masculine heaven. <sighs> those are the ones that I'll say. Um, and I'll just let that stand. Uh, the next thing I wanted to share, and this is almost the last one, is... 
in the winter of 1979, in the context of an intense campus discussion of sexism, racism, and other problems at the college, the New York Times reported on a day of speeches and workshops on campus referencing the speech given by an undergraduate woman who was urging more vigorous recruiting of minority women, expansion of the women's studies program, free daycare facilities, equal financing for women's and men's athletics, and a review of all tenure decisions for the last two years at Dartmouth. Three weeks later, that student received an envelope containing a copy of the Times story with the words, why, scrawled next to the paragraph reporting on her remarks. Typed below the story was a note that read, hope you're happy with this, you ungrateful bitch. You have done a terrible disservice to Dartmouth. If you don't like the place, get out. So as I said, that wasn't even all of the incidents. Um, so in contrast, I want to end with some positive stories from Dartmouth. And I just feel like these are a great contrast with that comment, if you don't like the place, get out. That's just kind of a crude way of saying what you were saying earlier, Christy, that you were articulating in a more sophisticated way, that it's really hard to make changes, right? And so um, they've been tasked with all kinds of really... Um, really huge changes to make and then some nuanced data to analyze and it's just hard to make change and then this guy just is crude about it and just says if you don't like it then leave right because mm -hmm. we're not going to change for you anyway um there were also some really lovely um examples of men supporting women mm -hmm. and i want to share a couple of those to end for example, a female student recalls that her graduating class in 1976 was congratulated with Dartmouth men and women and that the whole stadium erupted mm. into cheers. She felt very supported because they had always they they didn't say Dartmouth students, they said Dartmouth men. Mm -hmm. And she, that she was the first graduating class in 1976 and wow. so um somebody was willing awesome to say women. Um Another story is that a woman recalled that a professor told her later that he had spent the entire night up studying for the first day of class to make sure he got Miss Schaefer down properly as he went through Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, as he went through the class roll call because he wanted to be, he wanted to make sure that he didn't offend me, like mm. by pronouncing her name wrong and that he said Ms. like he kept practicing so that he didn't accidentally say Mr., and I so appreciate accounts like these because this sounds like the men I know. <laughs> Thank goodness. Like all those horrible misogynistic quotes like we talked about, we have heard those in our lives. Mm -hmm. Actually, more than I would have thought. As, the, as we started talking about them, I had a flood of them come back to me just now. I bet I think you did too. But those are far, far, far outnumbered by wonderful experiences with wonderful men who are just kind, good human beings who want to make women feel valued and welcome. And I just love imagining that kind professor practicing the mm -hmm. night before class, like the humility and just the tenderness of doing that. So this is not a story of male villains and female heroes. This is a story of men and women together finding themselves in an entrenched ancient patriarchal system and then trying to figure out the best way to go forward. And people have different responses and they decided to be different players in the play that was unfolding, right? So we all have that choice about how we handle our particular moment on the historical timeline in which we live. Um, one more example before we wrap up is this. In the spring of 1979, a woman in the senior class wrote to President Khamenei, almost on the spur of the moment, 
in the wake of a discussion in her feminist philosophy course. Okay, so what there was Yay. a feminist philosophy course by 1979. Good. Um, so she wrote to the president and said, we were talking about the givens in the use of language. Adam and Eve, men and women, boys and girls, how mm -hmm. men always come first, she said. President Kameni, she wrote at the time, during my four years at Dartmouth, you have always addressed student audiences as men and women of Dartmouth. When you are addressing my graduating class, would you please say women and men of Dartmouth? When Kameni did that at the commencement, the, the audience erupted in wild applause. A woman in the class of 1980 recalled women and men of Dartmouth. It reverberated through the audience. The symbolism was not lost on any of us. It was a dramatically different statement from men and women of Dartmouth. Tears came to our eyes. Shivers went down our spines. And cheers, mostly female, resounded through the audience. We knew we had made it, that we belonged, and that people who mattered wanted mm. it that way. So quickly, three points come to mind. Um, one thing is... It is still the same power dynamic, right? It's still a woman asking the man in power to please grant her request to show consideration and respect to women. And he could have said no. He could have said yes. And then the next president could say no. <laughs> like the power is still 100% in male hands. Um, and it reminds me, we've talked about this before in other episodes, but a, an article I saw in the New York Times when Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris as his running mate, there was an article that said, a female vice president would be tasked with wielding power in the service of a more powerful man. <laughs> That's no challenge to the patriarchy. And her article was called, Women Can Have a Little Power as a Treat, <laughs> which I loved. I loved that article. Um, it, it's by Dr. Kate Mann, if you want to look it up in the New York Times. Um, on the other hand, and my second point is, like I just said, we inherit the system we inherit and we choose to do with it what we do. And so given that President Kameni found himself in the position of being the president of Dartmouth, and he was asked to use the, the word women first, he had two choices, to do it or to not do it, to welcome women or to exclude them. And he made a choice that meant a lot to those women. Mm -hmm. So I was so impressed with him. Um, and then the third thing, as I reflect on that particular incident, but on a lot of the examples that we just read in all of our chapters, is that language really matters. Words matter. And it might feel small to someone who has never been in the position of being marginalized or mm -hmm. feeling left out, but it can feel like a big deal to a person who has absorbed a message that they are second class their whole lives. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to be really, really careful with our words. And I think I'll just make those my takeaways for the, the book as a whole. So as we wrap up the discussion, what's one of your takeaways, Christy? Yeah, this book made me really appreciate something I had previously taken for granted. In the early 80s, my mom attended Johns Hopkins University in pursuit of her doctorate degree. I was in second grade when she began her program there, and it was just jaw-dropping for me to learn. It was just 10 years earlier, in 1970-71, that Johns Hopkins became co-ed. You know, to think that my mom would not have had the opportunity to study there just 10 years prior is hard for me to even to even fathom. As, as a daughter of two highly educated parents, it honestly never crossed my mind that the opportunities for my mom to be educated would be any different than my dad's. 
And so I'm so grateful for the men and women who are willing to give so much time and effort to making this change. Um, because these were elite institutions with so much power, they really didn't need to change. They could have chosen to just stay the same and stay in, to stay in power exactly how they were. And they could have dug in their heels and continued on in the paradigm they were given. But instead, they chose to be an example of inclusiveness and growth, which meant for me, little Christy Peary, it meant that I grew up believing I had every opportunity open to me. And this belief shaped how I thought of myself and how hard I worked, and my confidence growing up, and how I saw myself in the world. So I'm really grateful. Well, I'm sure glad that little Christy Peary grew up to be exactly <laughs> the way she did. <laughs> um, and I absolutely agree. I I have new gratitude, too, for the whole process. And I'm grateful that as my daughters apply to college, they can apply anywhere they want. And I had never Mm-mm. been thought to be grateful for that nope. before. And I just have... Um, yeah, like, like you said, it just blows my mind that that was such a recent development. I had no idea until we read this book. So thank you so much for being here, Christy. I'm so grateful. As always, I learned so much from you and I so appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. I always, you know, I always love talking to you and I learned so much and yeah, I'm just really grateful you're doing this project. I think it's really important and I think it's needed and it's so useful for us to go through and and know the history of, of all of this and how it came to, to be and how we seem to be playing the same the same process over and over and over just because we we don't start from where other people left off mm-hmm. as much as we could, as much as we could. I know there are some people who do, but just collectively for all of us to know this history is essential. So I think what you're doing is just incredible and absolutely needed. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for participating with me because I couldn't do it without all of my reading partners. So I'm super, super grateful. Thank you. Well, our next episode coming up on Breaking Down Patriarchy is from the same time period as the one we just discussed today, but we're switching gears to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In 1954, the Supreme Court overturned Jim Crow laws, ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education that the practice of segregation based on principles of separate but equal were unconstitutional. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and the following year, two women attorneys, one black and one white, wrote a landmark article in the George Washington University Law Review, pointing out that in addition to the country's problem with systemic racism, the country also had a problem with male supremacy. This article is called Jane Crow and the Law, Title VII and Sex Discrimination by Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood. It can be found online in its entirety, but I think it's actually only on academic sites and you might have to have student access or purchase it. But there are summaries online for free and I highly recommend reading an article in The New Yorker from 2017 called The Many Lives of Polly Murray by Katherine Schultz in preparation for the discussion. And if you can read the article, that would be great. But even if you can't, we'll discuss the article thoroughly on the episode so you'll still learn a ton just by listening. So join us next time as we discuss Jane Crow and the Law, Title VII and Sex Discrimination by Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.